I heard you checking me out the other night. He's in the same hotel as me. He's playing me records. I walk past his room. And he's... Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, I get all over the hotel. Outside. I thought he's checking I... me there. He's yeah, gonna... I was playing as absolutely true. Last Saturday night, I was doing boom, boom, Very you... loud, resounding through the... If you could hear walking along the lobby of the hotel, I wonder what the people in the next room thought. Can you remember what the first song you ever wrote was, composed? No. no. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, I can. Uh, the first song I ever wrote was called I Lost My Little Girl. Oh. Oh. When I was 14, three chords, C, F and G. <laughs> what, what were the words like? Good rhymes? Uh, very good rhymes, yes. I lost my little girl. Um, her clothes were not expensive. Her hair wouldn't always curl. <laughs> no? <laughs> no, that wasn't too good, but uh, I never really used that one. But... Which one, when did you really realise you'd made it as a composer? Was there a moment, a dawning realisation? Um... Yeah, in truth, uh, I'd come back from uh, a club. I'd been out late one night, and uh, I was just getting to bed, and I heard the milkman whistling from me to you. So that kind of set the scene. Thought, that's, thought, that's it, I've arrived, you know, a milkman's whistling my tune. Paul McCartney, John Lennon, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. Has there ever been a greater band than the Beatles. It's impossible to overstate just how much of an impact the Beatles had. Their ascent in the early 60s coincided just as television sets became a feature in every middle-class household, transforming small city rock groups into a worldwide phenomena. The Beatles would become the best-selling band in history. 11 of their first 12 albums reached number one status in the UK. Not only would their success redefine what it meant to be a rock musician, it would also redefine what it meant to be a fan. My dad, David Frost, was certainly one of those fans. But more than that, they were mates. The same age, their careers started and soared at the same time. They were globe-trotting Brits who would meet around the world time and again, both off-camera and on. Dad recorded a stunning 16 separate Beatles interviews over his life. Will you welcome Mr. Paul McCartney? We return to the subject we dealt with uh, on Friday when we talked with John Lennon and George Harrison and we welcome them back very much indeed again tonight. A man you know very well, will you welcome him now to join us, Mr. Ringo Starr. While Dad never got all four together at once for an interview, he did for a performance, which they graciously began by playing the theme song to The David Frost Show, a theme song that had been written by none other than Beatles producer George Martin in the first place. A perfect rendition. Ladies and gentlemen, there you see the greatest tea room orchestra in the world. It's my pleasure to introduce now in their first live appearance for goodness knows how long in front of an audience, the Beatles. In fact, there's nobody in his career that Dad interviewed further apart than Paul McCartney. We go back a long way, us, you know. Oh, we're oh, reminiscent of the it. stories we could tell you. Oh. The stories we could <laughs> tell. tell me, what... Their conversation spanned 48 years the first in 1964, the last in 2012, just one year before Dad died. Across his Beatles interviews, Dad heard how George Harrison struggled with aspects of their success. And so then they started, they stoned us, you know, really did. We were trying to get out of there, and, and all the kids trying to grab and screaming and shouting, and then all the rest of the people trying to punch us and kicking us, and really, I, you know, I thought we were dead. John Lennon's beliefs in the power of art Everybody's so frightened that they'll see 
you know, don't, I must do this in case he sees how weak I am or how strong I am or whatever. Everybody's just got these walls around them. And Paul McCartney's heartbreak when the band broke up. We had one of the best jobs in the world. You know, we were in the Beatles. The money was there, the fame was there. Uh, and then suddenly, the day after, there was no job. And that is a blow. I'm Wilfred Frost, and these are the Frost Tapes. In this episode, a look inside the Fab Four, the greatest band of all time, the Beatles. And uh, everything's up today in Kansas City. But, um, no, 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 stop. Dave, let's turn into a music show. Long before they were superstars, the Beatles were just a bunch of teenage kids from Liverpool. Of course, their story has been told a million times, but nothing beats hearing it from the individual Beatles themselves and the slightly different takes they each had. Dad had a front row seat to those personal accounts, and in 1997, he sat down with Paul McCartney to reflect on how he first fell in love with music. Really, my sort of first interest in music, or my first taste of music, would be the family sing-alongs, which were New Year's Eve. And it was a great evening, you know, because it was quite a big family. They'd roll the carpets back and all the ladies would have little gin and its, rum and blacks, baby shams, oh, yeah. and, and steadily get drunker during the evening. And there'd be someone playing the piano. Most of the time, that was my dad. So he would play all these things, and later on, I took over that role. But that's where I heard all these old songs, you know, Chicago. <laughs> that was the entertainment of that era. It was pre-TV, so it was great. It all sort of, I took it all in like a sponge. And so when I grew up, I had a great affection for those songs, and I realised that I'd been noticing without realising it the structure of the songs and some of the tricks and some of the things that would later find their way into my songs, just because they were in my sort of subconscious. You know. Did you think of yourselves as, typical British phrases, working class, middle class? Working class, I thought. We were in a council house. Yeah, I, I was always very proud, working class, you know, that, that suit me fine. I still think of myself as that. I still You, th am. you still do? You yeah, I do, really. It's, uh, maybe I should have adapted, <laughs> but I haven't. I mean, in my mind, I think I'm actually very proud to be of the working classes. You know, I think, I think people have a, a, a strange idea about working classes, like they're all thick. Um, my family was, like, amazingly intelligent. My dad was really um, a great wordsmith. My cousin, Bert, used to compile crosswords for Telegraph, Guardian, and Times, which are probably three of the best crosswords yes. in the world. So, I mean, you know, there were, there were no slouches when it came to that. And you said that, that you'd, you'd met princes and prime ministers and so on, but there was nothing better than the common sense of a, a Liverpool lad or a Liverpool man. Yeah, I, I believe that. Um, you know, I'd, I've met, as you say, lots of great people and I think they are great, but I don't think they're any greater than some of the great people I met as a kid, you know, who were just ordinary people, but uh, had, you know, common sense, had the nous, you know, yeah. had the humour, yeah. and, you know, had the wit to not become a prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> who needs that job? Did the death of your mother interrupt your life? You were only 14, weren't you? Hmm. Oh, yeah, it did. Um, it, it was strange because in those days, nobody talked about it. So we just knew my mum was ill. And we had to go and stay with my auntie. Uh, and then just one morning, um, she came in and just said, bad news, boys, you know, your mum's died. And we didn't know of what. We didn't know anything about it. So yeah, it was a huge shock to the system. I suppose you just thought, well, what are we going to do now? You know, what's... What's going to happen? Just a year after losing his mother, Paul would meet John Lennon for the first time. It was July 1957, and a 15-year-old Paul was attending a Liverpool church garden party. 
There, a 17-year-old John Lennon was performing with his band, a skiffle group called The Quarrymen. At the time, Lennon wasn't a particularly good guitarist. In fact, he didn't even know how to tune one. So after the concert, Paul went up to the elder teenager and impressed him with his guitar skills. A friendship was born. We'd grown up as kids from Liverpool, so we read each other. We knew each other's history. You know, the other big, very important thing is both our mothers had died when we were teenage. So we had a bond there that we never talked about. But each of us knew that that had happened to the other person. So if you wanted to, you could talk about it. We hardly ever did. Um, so these kind of things, I think, gave us a strength. And going back to those early days, as you said, I mean, you had a much more happy, normal upbringing, didn't you? I, mean, I think so, yeah. Well, it, uh, it's not that John's home life wasn't happy. It was the circumstances, you know, not living with his dad. Mm. Um, and then, I say, his uncle dying. And then his mum... Uh, being run over when she'd come to visit him and the auntie, who was a lovely girl, a lovely lady called Mimi. Um, they were they were more middle class than any of us other Beatles had ever met. You see, so we we thought of John as quite posh, whereas later, you know, the image was oh the working class hero, yeah. power to yeah. the people, yeah. which yeah. he was and he believed. But his upbringing was actually quite posh compared quite to posh. us. You know, we'd we'd live in like council houses. They owned their own house. I mean, how posh can you get, Dave? Oh, that's posh. You know? That but, is um, seriously posh. She was lovely as Aunt Mimi was lovely. And she'd take the mickey out of me. She'd say, your little friend's here, John. I'd say, thank you. That was me, you know, little friend. She didn't like George at all. Thought John was going, scraping the bottom of the barrel there for some reason. Even younger than Paul, George Harrison was another Liverpool teen. He had met Paul years earlier while riding the bus to school and the two quickly bonded over their love of guitar. When Paul started playing with the Quarrymen, he suffered from a bout of stage fright and urged John to let George into the band. George, he argued, was a much better guitarist and could play lead. John agreed. And at the age of 15, George Harrison joined the band. In 1971, George sat down with Dad to reflect on his upbringing. This particular interview had been presumed destroyed until I tracked down an audio-only version earlier this year. What are your first memories of growing up in Liverpool? Uh, was that fun? You hated school. Yeah, Liverpool Institute. And that was terrible, you know, it was really awful because it was like being in the army. All the fun of uh, junior school had gone and this school was really terrible, you know. Just looking out the window thinking about how I could be practicing a guitar when they wanted to try and, you know, teach me uh, Pythagoras and all that. I was a complete failure. Because you didn't want to be. You just didn't when I left school, they gave me a testimonial which said, I can't tell you what his work's like because he's never done any. I was taking no part in any school activity whatsoever. So, and was it really the waste of time because you wanted to be at the guitar? You had a deal, I read somewhere, with one of the teachers that uh, yeah. he'd let you go to sleep at the back of the class. And I wouldn't harass him. <laughs> I used to cause a bit of trouble, you know. How did you manage to afford a guitar? Or did you it cost it? two pound ten. It's about, what's that, five dollars? Six dollars. Six dollars. Was it a good guitar? No, it's awful. Well, how old were you when you got your first guitar? Thirteen. You said your parents were terrific, you said somewhere mm -hmm. in the sense that they were very... Yeah, they, uh, they used to, you know, encourage me. Did you know when you, were, when you got your first guitar that you wanted to be a musician? I mean, you, oh, I knew I wanted to be a musician, yeah. But I didn't know if I was uh, going to make it, you know, if it was actually going to come off. While, as we heard from Paul earlier that John Lennon's aunt had some misgivings about George Harrison, Paul McCartney's father had concerns about John Lennon, worrying he'd be a bad influence on his son. Your so, dad wasn't too sure about John, was he? Definitely not, not at all sure, because John was... Uh, this is the way it was, you know, you know, people's prejudices. And he had sideburns, sideboards. Yeah. Americans call them sideburns. And uh, which attracted us to him. We thought, that's pretty cool. But of course, my dad, you know, no, no, no. But later, he got to like him. He got to understand. But uh, how old were you when you started playing around with musical instruments? You, you had a 
trumpet and then you realised you couldn't play the trumpet yeah. and sing it at the same time. My dad bought me a trumpet for a birthday and that's exactly right. I tried, I can still to this day play when the saints go marching in, in C. In C, my favourite. Not very well, but it does imp impresses the members of the orchestra. Yeah. <laughs> but so that you, you instantly mastered the guitar and then when you get further on in your life, hmm. one discovers that you actually, while you were at school, you wrote Michel, or what was going to become Michel, mm. and what was going to become when I'm 64. Mm. You were writing That's hits right. without knowing it. Yeah, you know, I, was, um, I didn't have the words to when I'm 64, so the, the nice tongue-in-cheekness came later with the 60s, which I think was a, kind of le lent it a little bit of sophistication. It was, you know, it was, it was, will you still need me, feed me? Um, and Michelle, the same thing, the words. But the melodies, yeah, I did have, uh, when I was 64, for messing around on my dad's piano. And Michelle from sitting around enigmatically at uh, art school parties, hoping to pull birds by singing in cod French. Ah. And it never bad. worked. Never worked. It did not work. Through 1958 and 1959, the quarrymen, who'd mainly played blues and folk music, began experimenting with rock and roll, playing Buddy Holly and some of their own original tunes. When many of the original members quit in protest, the band was left with Lennon, McCartney, Harrison and a bassist, Stuart Sutcliffe. So the group decided to change their name. They tried a number of different titles, Johnny and the Moondogs and the Silver Beatles, but eventually they arrived at the name we all know and love, The Beatles. In the late 1950s, the band added Pete Best on drums. After gigging around Liverpool, the group decided to go to Hamburg, Germany, and play in the city's famous red light district called the Reeperbahn, which was an established route for bands looking to make a name for themselves. It was great, you know, the Reeperbahn and Grosse Freiheitstrasse, which is just two streets like this, and it's full of nightclubs and prostitutes and pimps and, you know, the usual. And <laughs> big strapping women wrestling in the mud and, you know, lots of fun and games. And so it was really good after coming out of school, you know, it was certainly a change. How old were you? Seventeen. Mm, Seventeen. What are your memories of that? I mean, was it sinful? It was crazy. It was really good. Yeah, we drove there in a van, and uh, we had these jackets made before we left. The next door neighbour to Paul made them out of very cheap material, purple coats, and uh, they melted the first night. But, um, yeah, it was funny. You know, they put us in a little club called the Indra, which was called, which means India. And uh, they put us in this club and then they uh, had to close the club down because we made too much noise, which seemed strange because the whole place was just filled with noise, you know, all these nightclubs. So then they moved us to another place called the Kaiser Keller. We worked there for a while. But it was really, you know, it was really nice because we, uh, we got together though. That was the first time we really played long hours. By the time we came back to England, we were you know, quite good. In Hamburg, the playing schedule was grueling. The bassist, Stuart Sutcliffe, ultimately decided to leave the band. Now down to four members, the Beatles were forced to forge their own unique sound. As John Lennon recalled, it was Hamburg that did it. We would never have developed as much if we'd stayed at home. And the work paid off. The Beatles would eventually capture the attention of their future manager, Brian Epstein, and the music producer, George Martin. Here's Martin in conversation with Dad, both in 1970 and in a previously thought lost interview in 1975. He's been described as all sorts of things, as the fifth Beatle and titles like that, because he's the man who discovered the Beatles, recorded all their stuff, played a vast part in their success. A good friend, Mr. George Martin. Very good to have you with us. How did you come originally to meet John and Paul? Or how did you come into contact with them? It was Brian. Brian Epstein brought me a tape of them, uh, which was not very good, not, not particularly brilliant, but it was quite interesting. And um, I didn't discover till afterwards that, in fact, every record company had turned them down already, including the record company I was working for. 
Was the group, when they first came to you, the four? No, was no, we no, go with no, them by then? No, it was Pete Best was on drums then. And um, in fact, we took some time before, when I first met them, I, d I wasn't quite sure what to do with them because I felt they needed a hit song, you see. And I didn't think they could write one. They hadn't shown me they could. And I started looking for some good material. In fact, it was about oh, eight months, I suppose, before we eventually cut a record that was any good. And that was Love Me Do. And um, eventually, and after that, I gave them a song, which I thought was very good indeed. And they didn't like it very much because they hadn't written it. And I said, well, now, if you can turn out as good a song as that, I'll take it. So they went away and they came back in with a song called Please Please Me. And it did please me very much. And it became number one. And I was, you know, I was knocked out by this. This was just what I wanted. While Epstein and Martin were impressed with the group's newest songs, there was one thing they weren't impressed with. The drummer, Pete Best. Before recording their first album, the band's managers fired Best and the Beatles began searching for a new drummer. They chose Ringo. They'd, they'd seen him in, uh, in Liverpool. In I was hostile, actually, to Ringo when he came in because um, having, had, having worried about uh, uh, one drummer, I said, well, OK, he may be all right, but I know I've got a good session drummer on this session. And I booked a, a London man for the recording session on Let Me Do. And I was very sceptical about this new character coming in. And... Um, Poor Ringo. He told me afterwards he felt rather bad about it because I didn't, obviously didn't, didn't treat him too well. But Ringo did do the drumming and let me do it. Yes, we did two sessions actually. We did one with Andy Wyatt, uh, with Ben and Ringo playing tambourine. But the real one, which was issued, did have Ringo on drums. With the addition of Ringo Starr, whose real name is Richard Starkey, the Fab Four was finally established but not without controversy. By the early 1960s, the Beatles were already accumulating dedicated fans. The firing of Best caused protests, which resulted in Harrison getting a black eye and Epstein's car tires getting slashed. But despite that, the Beatles' rise had well and truly begun, carried by the strength of Lennon and McCartney's songwriting, a skill they'd been honing since they were teenagers jamming at Paul's parents' house. John and I, we were writing pretty much everything together. We wrote uh, Love Me Do in the parlour of uh, my house in Liverpool, my dad's house, of 24th and Road, which is now a National Trust house, would you believe? Wouldn't they be thrilled to know that, your parents? Oh, yeah. I think they, would be, they wouldn't believe it. I saw her standing there. How did that come to be written? I saw her standing there. It was another front parlour job. Uh, yeah. John and I would get off school... Um, not always with the permission of the teachers. And we'd go there because that was that my dad would work. So that meant the house was free, he was out at work. Um, John's house wasn't free, his auntie would be in there, so we couldn't go there. So it had to be a, an empty house, you know, for us to do this devilish work of writing songs. Where did you write She Loves You? In a hotel bedroom on a couple of twin beds. You know, uh, that's how we always did it. The two of us would have a room, two of the other two. Um, and uh, in the afternoons, we'd arrive, we'd arrive at the place we were going to do the gig in the evening. We'd just make sure the equipment was in, and then you'd have a few hours before the gig. Um, and you'd either, you couldn't really go to the pub because you'd get too sloshed, and you, you couldn't really do that. So you had to kill time. So you'd either go and see a film, or in this case, it'd go back to the hotel, and John and I would say, well, you know, got a bit of time, let's try and write a song. So we did. We wrote She Loves You. Um, it was a little bit of a departure because they'd been very personal, our songs. Love me do. Um, P.S. I love you. From me to you. Oh but your God. father had one objection to it. He was... Uh, um, we were in the dining room, a little dining room of 4th Lynn Road, a little council house, and where we used to rehearse a lot. And John and I finished the song off there. Um, we'd written it in the hotel, but we, we needed a few words. So we finished it one night there, and I came into the parlour where my dad was. And we said, hey, Dad, listen to this, you know, do you love you? Yeah, yeah. And he, he was a musician, he liked it, tapping along with it. He said, son, he said, there's only one thing. He said, if I may be so bold. He said, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, there's enough of these Americanisms around. Couldn't you sing she loves you, yes, yes, yes? Oh, and we lovely. said... Not really, you know, there's something that, yeah, 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 is going to be good for us, we could tell. Yeah. The other thing, obviously, is there was no 
Rogers and Hammerstein in it, in that you could both write and you could both yeah. write words and music. Yeah. Well, when we got to America, the first question was, well, who does the words? Who does the music? Yeah. You know, because everyone had always seen words by music. Yeah. We said, well, I don't know. He does them someday. I do them the other day. You know, it depends, really. I'll do the music and we'll swap. And so. They used to say, what's your formula for hits? We said, well, you know, we hope we never find one. Because yeah. it get very boring if you... And uh, with John and I, uh, I think we were a great team. We enjoyed working with each other. I think that's a great secret. We used to, we used to do three-hour sessions normally. I'd go to his house or he'd come to mine. We'd sit down for about three hours. One of us would normally have a bit of an idea. I'd just arrived at his house out in Weybridge. He'd be getting up. He'd, that'd be the signal for him to get yeah. up, you know, and have a quick coffee, and then we'd be into the thing. I just got out the car and had a driver on this. I think I'd been done for speeding, so I'd, I had a driver on this occasion. I almost just drive myself. And I was chatting to him, as you do. And I said, um, what have you been doing? I've been working hard. I've been working eight days a week. Uh, oh, yeah. And then went in. So John said, right, what are we doing? I said, we, song called Eight Days a Week. Oh, good title, yeah. And so we just, you know, yeah. and we wrote it. And it only ever took us those three hours. And we, I don't ever remember coming away from there without a song. Finished. Between 1962 and 1964, John and Paul became prolific, busting out hits like She Loves You, I Want to Hold Your Hand, A Hard Day's Night, and Can't Buy Me Love. Did you write so prolifically that the record company couldn't, couldn't really keep up with you? I love looking back on it, especially when I'm talking to younger people about the business, because they'll say, well, how did you do all that? I'll say, well, it was because that was what you did. That was what the grown-ups told you to do. I remember being in a meeting with Capitol Records, and we said to them, well, what do you want? You know, they said four singles a year and two albums. Mm. We said, okay. Yeah, yeah, fine, you know, four singles, two albums. Right. It was just what you were expected to do. Yeah. You were told to arrive at the studio at 10 o'clock. John and I would actually then tell George and Ringo what we were going to do because we would have written, they wouldn't know the song. We'd play the song, go and record it in one and a half hours. So you did four songs in a day. So it was, well, that was all we knew. It was required. So we did it. The Beatles' first single, Love Me Do, charted at 17, but their follow-up, Please Please Me, reached number one in the UK. Soon their music was being played on the airwaves on both sides of the Atlantic. But the band didn't really take off until their manager, Brian Epstein, travelled to the US and secured the Beatles a spot on The Ed Sullivan Show. That single programme attracted an audience of nearly 73 million people. The result? Absolute mayhem. There was like, it became like a religious fervour almost overnight, didn't it? It must have been yeah. thrilling and sometimes terrifying to you. I don't think it was terrifying to us, because no. I think we were... The good thing about the Beatles' career is it was a staircase. So now where you'll get kids come in at the top, you know, pop idol, American idol, we've got talent, whatever yeah. X Factor. Yeah. They come in, poof, and they're over a period of, what, eight weeks, they're major national stars. Well, we, we couldn't get arrested at first, so we play little clubs, and then we play Hamburg, and then we play little theatres. Well, no, ballrooms, then theatres, bit of telly, and so on and so on. So by the time we came to be really famous and the screaming began, we were a little bit used to it. But there were plenty of examples when things got out of hand. Here's George Harrison. Of all the things fans have done over the years and so on, do you know what I mean, in terms of crazy, hysterical things, what do you look back on and laugh about or remember the most? The thing I remember the most was probably the worst thing that ever happened to us, which was when we went to Manila. It was a complete mistake. Somehow somebody booked us into Manila. So we got to Manila and it was really terrible. You know, somebody had promoted hustles and scene with the first family and set it up saying, yeah, I get the Beatles and we bring them to the palace and they'll meet everybody. And so we were sleeping. We just sort of come in from Tokyo and just banging on the hotel door, knock, 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 come on, you're late. And we said, well, we're not going anywhere. 
and they said, it's on live on TV, so they turned the TV on, and there's the TV cameras and rows and rows of people all dressed up saying, well, they're still not here, and they're all waiting to meet us. <laughs> and, but they never asked us, you see. So we said, we're not going to that, you know, they've got to speak to our manager. And so then they started, they stoned us, you know, really did. We were trying to get out of there and we had to carry our own equipment amplifiers and nobody could drive us to the airport. And there was still all the, the sort of Beatlemania half going on, all the kids trying to grab and screaming and shouting, and then all the rest of the people trying to punch us and kicking us. And really, I, you know, I thought we were dead then. It was terrible, terrible place. Golly, that must have been the worst. Did you ever go back? Oh, no. <laughs> what was the best, actually? What was the most exhilarating? Uh, or have you got to a point now where those sort of They all sort of blend blurred. into one. It just becomes like, you know, something in the back of my mind. It's hard to overstate how popular and ubiquitous the Beatles had become. By the early 1960s, sales were easily beating out Elvis Presley, and the band was constantly number one on the Billboard charts. The group began touring internationally, bringing in tens of thousands of fans wherever they went. In fact, when the Beatles visited Australia in 1964, it sparked the largest gathering in the nation's history. Interestingly, though, at different times in different interviews with Dad, various Beatles spoke about how the fame and money wasn't what they were after. Here are Lennon and Harrison in 1967. Before we sort of made it, as they say, uh, money was partly the goal, but it still wasn't a sort of, let's get some money. But we sort of got, suddenly had money, and then it wasn't all that good. By having the money, we found that money wasn't the answer, because we had lots of material uh, things that people sort of spend their whole life to try and get. We managed to get them at quite an early age. And it was good, really, because we learned that that wasn't it. We still lacked something. Would you be as happy now if all the money were taken away? Yeah, I'd probably be happier, actually. I mean, you can use all the material things, like we've got them, and it's nice to have them. But we don't really believe in them. Whereas some people who haven't the material things, they tend to believe in them. But if you had to choose at this moment between uh, having meditation and, and all that goes with it, and having all your possessions, you would choose to give up the possessions? Yes. The group also began hanging out with various other superstars. On one of their earliest tours in the United States, they famously met with Bob Dylan, who helped introduce the band to a more bohemian style of music, as well as a few other things. Bob Dylan, when he came into your lives, he introduced pot as well. It was a friend of Bob's, and I think he gets a little bit annoyed being landed with that rap, you know. <laughs> it was you, Bob. It wasn't me. But um, we were interested to see, you know, what was involved. We were really drinking men before that. But uh, it changed quite a lot of things, you know. It, it, it heralded in a new era after that, really, for us. Indeed, the introduction of drugs would change things. The Beatles, who were growing tired of playing to screaming fans, wanted to focus less on what some were framing as teeny bopper music. They wanted to try something more experimental to test the boundaries of what could be done in a music studio. In 1965, they released the album Rubber Soul, which included songs like Day Tripper and We Can Work It Out. Lennon would call it the band's first pot album, but it was also evidence that Lennon and McCartney's styles were maturing. We started off writing very simple songs together. Gradually the songs got a little more complex, a little better as we learned our trade. Um, and then eventually, because we didn't spend time in hotel rooms together anymore, uh, and we lived separately, he would write something, I would write it, and then we would probably finish each other's songs off. You know, yeah, that's we, fascinating. You really could do that, couldn't you? Yeah, you know, I'd write something like Eleanor Rigby, and I, I just didn't have the last verse or something, but I knew how the song went. So I'd take it to him and sort of say, OK, now, here's how it goes. What do you think? And it was a great way to work, and I valued his opinion greatly as he valued mine. And I had, second verse, I had a character called Father McCartney. Father McCartney, do, 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 do. And he said, oh, that's nice. I said, no, 
that's my dad. So I don't really want to be singing about Father McCartney. So we got the phone book out. McCartney, 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 McKenzie. So he became Father McKenzie. Yeah, yeah. So those kind of things were, were great to do. He'd bring a song and I'd finish it off, Day in the Life. He had, I read the news today, oh boy. So we'd finish it together and then do all the verses together. Slot my little thing in the middle of it all. And then occasionally we would write things totally separately and finish them up. By the mid-1960s, one could even say that McCartney was able to write hits in his sleep, quite literally. May 65 was when you woke up with yesterday. You woke up, woke up with a beautiful tune that you didn't know where it was from. Yeah, you know, you dream and uh, you don't know where dreams come from. But this was a good dream. At the end of it, I, I'd heard this tune. I can't remember on what, whether it was an orchestra or a record. But it was this tune in my head. And I woke up and I had a piano beside the bed and uh, put some chords to it, uh, which was lucky because they were pretty good chords. There were a couple of nice changes in there. But, um, yeah, I'd suddenly written yesterday without even trying. And the amazing thing for me is that it, was, it is my most successful song ever. So it kind of, yeah. it's a funny philosophical point. Oh, the I mean, one you tried least with yeah. and is the, the biggest. Did the tunes keep coming that way? No, that's the only one I've dreamt. I just think it was very magical the way that arrived. People would say through the, do you believe in magic? And I'd, just, I'd quote that as an example of why I sort of have to. Mm believe in something mystical, something magical. Because I had the whole song in my head, the whole melody. I think what's maybe unusual is remembering it. So, you yeah. always forget a dream. Yeah. What if you'd forgotten yesterday? Yeah. Well, so well, you would never know that you did. While there's understandably a lot of focus on McCartney and Lennon's songwriting, the Beatles were what they were only because of all four of them. I always think of it as four corners of a square you couldn't do without any corner. You know, people will sort of say, well, Ringo was just a drummer. He was much more than that. Still is to this day, very witty, very clever guy. George was a huge influence. I've seen books sort of saying, oh, George Harrison, standing around with his plectrum in his hand waiting for a solo. That's not it. He was much more involved. We were all of us much more involved. The Beatles made the Beatles what it was by being those four personalities. It wasn't just John, it wasn't just me. Uh, John and I obviously were the songwriters, except when George started to write really great things, he wrote, he wrote uh, Frank Sinatra's favourite Lennon McCartney song, actually. <laughs> Something in the way she moves. Yeah. He introduced it like that. Yeah. My favourite Lennon McCartney. <laughs> hey, Frank, it's not. It's a Harrison. Never mind. By the late 1960s, the Beatles were now in their mid to late 20s. Their music and their personal styles were changing. By 1967, long gone were the bowl cuts and black suits, in were the moustaches, shaggy hair and wacky costumes. You had the original idea, didn't you, on the way back from Kenya for Sergeant Pepper? Um, Kenya, America, I can never remember where. I was way back from somewhere. Uh, yeah. And, and what uh, was the original idea? Was it the it, final idea or was No, the it... original idea was that because we'd started out as the Beatles and the, and the greatness was the freshness and... Always when you do a thing for the first time, there's that thing, you know, and you just can't, uh, you, you can't get away from it. And things can get a bit boring, you know. So what I wanted to try and do with the Sgt. Pepper's album was to try and get the Beatles to forget we were the Beatles. And so I kind of hit upon this idea of us, us all having alter egos that um, we'll dress funny, we'll pretend we won't be the Beatles, we'll be Sgt. Pepper's band. And so that when you stepped up to the microphone and you were going to do a vocal, instead of thinking, oh, these are my, all my normal nerves, all my normal vocal fears, no, it won't. It's this other guy. So you could superimpose this other person on everything you had to do in that album. And it led to a lot of fresh ideas. The approach worked. The album included classics like A Day in the Life, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, With a Little Help from My Friends, and When I'm 64. By the late 1960s, the Beatles' squeaky clean image was fading. They were quickly becoming the poster boys for a growing subgenre of music called psychedelic rock. Critics in the press began arguing that the band was becoming a bad influence for the world's youth, making drug use look cool. When Paul McCartney sat down with Dad years later, he'd clarify his past views and actions. 
I mean, you said somewhere that if asked for advice even about pot, you'd say to people these days, better to go straight. Uh, that would be your, that would be I your think, advice. I think you know, yeah. I think even uh, about pot, even about anything, booze. You know, obviously it's uh, it's not that great, but the society we live in um, has booze as one of its constituents, and cigarettes and stuff. And we, you know, when they tried prohibition, it didn't work. The people kept doing it, so they had to come to some arrangement. And I feel that it's it's a bit that way with pot these days. I think that uh, so I I think a liberal attitude isn't a bad thing. I'd, so I'd, I'd favour decriminalisation of it. Uh, but yeah, if my kids ever asked me what, what about it, you know, I would say, well, you know, there's these bunch of drugs. This is probably the least harmful. And there's a hit list. You can go up it until you get to heroin or that, you know, is not easy or, in fact, impossible for some people to get back from. But I always say to them, you know, that's the, that's the facts of life. But if you want my advice, you know, don't do any. I think that is the best advice, you know, if you can do that. But I say, it's a stressful life, and so-called normal people will reach for a Valium or a Sherry or a wine, and um, it can probably, I think, be more of a danger to people than the pot smoker can. In fact, all the Beatles pivoted away from drugs and in 1967 became interested in Eastern religions and went on a retreat with the Indian guru, the Maharishi, to learn about meditation. Dad interviewed George and John about their experience, having just interviewed the Maharishi too. The two things that the Maharishi said this morning uh, were the results for people who meditated and followed this system of meditation. The two things he claimed for it were serenity and energy. Have you found that? I've got more energy. You know, well, I mean, I've got the same energy, but I know how to tap it at all. How do you mean exactly? Well, uh, you know, the energy that I've found through doing it, I've, I know damn well I've had it there before. I just haven't, I've only used it on what I term good days, you know, yeah. when everything's gone well. And then I've found more energy because it's been going well. Well, with meditation, I find that if it's not too good a day, I can still sort of get the same amount as... And, and, and you've, can you link the two in any way? I mean, I mean is, it, is it true of any day of meditation is, is, is equally good? I mean, it... Yeah, well, the worst days I have on meditation are better than the worst days I had before without it. Do you find that, George? Mm, it's all... Um, the energy's latent within everybody. It's there anyway. The meditation is just a, a natural process of, of being able to contact that. So by doing it each day, you contact that energy and give yourself a little more. Consequently, you're able to do whatever you normally do, just with a little bit more happiness. I mean, you, you experimented with drugs. Is that why you put them on one side? Well, we dropped them long before Maharishi. Oh, it wasn't... Mm. Yeah, we just, you know, we'd had enough acid. We'd, it had done all it could do for us. You know, there was no going any further. It only does so much. In 1967, while the group was on a retreat with the Maharishi, their manager, Brian Epstein, died. He was just 33. It was the beginning of the end for the Beatles. The band tried to manage itself for a year, but with little success. And then John Lennon was approached by Al Klein, the manager for the Rolling Stones. He proved to be a divisive force. McCartney opposed Klein at all turns, but the group signed with him anyway, and Klein quickly fired all of the people who'd helped the Beatles succeed in the first place. He came over, he wanted the Beatles, he made it known that he wanted the Beatles. He persuaded John and Yoko that he would be the great manager for the Beatles, and he persuaded them. He said to Yoko that, that he would give her an art exhibition in Syracuse. So, and then he got us all to pay for it. So, I mean, obviously then she was on his side. And, it, you know, on a client he would say, what do you want? A million bucks? You got it. So this was fairly persuasive mm. argument. <laughs> and well, I went, eh, 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 whoa, wait a minute. This doesn't look right to me. And so, but if Brian Epstein had not died, and therefore Alan Klein had not found a space that he could involve mm. himself in. Mm. God knows what would have happened. The Beatles might have stayed together 
and you'd still be in the Beatles today? They might have, um, but I think John in particular was ready to do something else. And when Yoko came along, uh, part of her attraction, I think, was the sort of avant-garde side of things, which she was famous for and still is. Um, so she showed him another way to be that was very attractive to him. And I could see that, you know, she's just sort of said, well, no, look, you know, how about this? Don't you like this? Are you just a rock and roller? And so I think it was time for John certainly to leave. It was a bit of a shock to all of us. He just announced it, oh, you know, I'm leaving the group. Uh, we all said, oh, are you sure about that? And we tried to keep it together, but he was definitely going to leave. So that was basically what did it. You've never really blamed Yoko for the breakup, as a lot no, of people no, no. did, have you? She certainly didn't break the group up. The group was breaking up, and I think she attracted John so much to another way of life that he then went on to do very successfully and had a sort of second part to his career, writing things like Imagine and doing uh, Give Peace a Chance. I don't think he would have done that without Yoko. So you can't blame her. That was a big blow when that moment came. Mm. You said you almost had a nervous brain and then you worked out, then yeah. you worked out this plan. We had one of the best jobs in the world. You know, we were in the Beatles. The money was there, the fame was there, good writing partners to check things with. Uh, and then suddenly, the day after, there was no job. And that is a blow. And I think it's the same blow that people who get redundant in a shipyard feel. Uh, they might come back at me and say, yeah, but you had money. I wouldn't mind so much. But I don't think it is the money. I think it's something to do with self-worth and just not having a job to go to the next day. There's something strange when that happens. Uh, so it kind of hit me quite hard. Uh, and I just uh, started not really wanting to get out of bed. Because I think, you know, I just felt uh, worthless. If I wasn't in the Beatles, I was worthless. So, um, yeah, I kind of found my way back from that. Didn't stay in bed. Didn't just drink all day. Started to sort of think, well, you know, there's other things to be done. And gradually found my way back and uh, started to enjoy myself. While he never recaptured the magic of the Beatles, McCartney's second band, Wings, formed in 1971, was a major success, particularly with songs like Silly Love Songs and Live and Let Die. He would go on to top the charts again in the 1980s with collaborations with Michael Jackson and with Stevie Wonder. Meanwhile, Lennon's solo career met great success too with songs like Imagine and Give Peace a Chance, among many others. And his songs were often tied to a cause. And now it's my pleasure to welcome, will you welcome please, Mr. and Mrs. John Lennon, John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Take on for Peace Week now, so here goes. You ready? Mind the camera there? Oh, no. <laughs> okay, go. If you plant them, you get trees. That was 1969, one of five interviews Dad did with Lennon, ranging from 1967 to 1972, four with Yoko alongside him. Dad loved having the pair on. The interviews tended to be less focused on Lennon's time with the Beatles and more on what they were doing to raise awareness for various causes. In the case of that last clip, that meant pelting the audience with acorns. Yes, do have some, David. Now tell me, what's the significance? Have one of those. Well, acorn is a seed, and seed is a seed of life and hope, and maybe if some people planted them, they'd hope we lived that long. They always kept things fresh and interesting, and even one time gave Dad a gift. I brought you a wee book. Here's another piece. Another piece. A present. <laughs> to David, a box of smile. <laughs> we give him a lot of gear. He throws it away, actually. <laughs> <laughs> You'll regret it. Still looking for his Picassos. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> Yoko gave Dad a gift with a box of smiles written on it. In it was a mirror looking back at him. When Dad saw it, he started beaming. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. 
thought you'd like it. Oh, I adore it. It's the nicest thing I've ever had. Thank you very much indeed. I shall carry it with me at all times. I like it. It was clear from Dad's multiple interviews with the couple that they were deeply in love. You do share with us a great deal of your lives, don't well, you? I mean, uh, you're... Everybody's hiding everybody with these walls around them. What have we got to hide, you know? Well, nothing That's after that. So, book, right. <laughs> but I mean, what, what, what about it, you know? What are we hiding from each other? Everybody's so frightened that they'll see, you know, don't... I must do this in case he sees how weak I am or how strong I am or whatever. Everybody's just got these walls around them. That's true. And we, if we can... We've broken down a few barriers between us. Mm. You know, which we had to do because we had two big egos, two individual artists, and in spite of and with love, we overcame that. So what we're doing is trying to share what we've experienced with everybody else that we can communicate with and say, uh, this, you know, it worked for us and it was hard, and this is, we're open, you know, we're not hiding anything as best we can, and it doesn't hurt, and it's very comfortable. So why are you so frightened? And, and tell me, how has this thing gone of the sleep-ins you've been having in? Mm. You had one in Canada and one in Holland, didn't you? Yeah. So, those are what? To draw attention to or peace, you know? We're trying to sell peace like a product, you know, and sell it like people sell soap or soft drinks, you know. Mm. And the only way to get people aware that peace is possible and it isn't just uh, inevitable to have violence, not just war, all forms of violence, People just accept it and think, oh, they did it, or Harold Wilson did it, or Nixon did it. And they're always scapegoating people. And it isn't Nixon's fault. We're, we're all responsible for everything that goes on. The people have the power. What we want to tell them is, you have the power. Anybody interested in peace, just stick it in the window. It's simple, but it lets somebody else know that you want peace too. Because you feel alone if you're the only one thinking, wouldn't it be nice if there was peace and nobody's getting killed? So advertise your, yourself that you're for peace if you believe in it. Even if it's down to just say, having it in your own window, you know, like they have political candidates' names. Only you sell it every day, don't just sell it every Easter. It's, it's a functional. logical extension, really, of the make love, not war thing. Yeah, sure, yes. I mean, that, that's turned into a cliché. You know, you know, make bed, not yeah, war, you say. Just the same, make love, not war, you know. But what do you want to do next, the pair of you? Make peace, you know. mm. Sell it, that's all we're going to do. Whatever we do will be for peace. In December 1980, John Lennon was shot dead outside of his apartment in New York City. The world was stunned. Everybody, as you know, always says about JFK and the death of John Lennon and the other two occasions where everybody remembers where they were. How did you learn the sad news of John? I got a phone call from my office and the bloke who was running it at the time said to me, I've got some terrible news for you. So, oh my God. I was, you know, when you hear that, you know, oh my God, how terrible are, you, are we talking here? And he said, John's just been shot dead. And, oh, my God. And you immediately, I think it was the re same reaction as everyone else. No, 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 just tell me he's been shot wounded. Not dead. Don't say that word. I don't want that word. So I was just, uh, just wrecked, really. And it was only that evening it really hit me. Mm. Only, the day I was very sort of stoic and it was, in, it was that evening I just went home and wept and just let it all out then. And that, I, just, I was just emotional. But I, I, I tend to be emotional in private. It's not easy for me to be publicly emotional. No. Would you want to think that you're going to live after you die? What do you think? I really don't know, you know. Um, when we were kids, we always used to say, OK, whoever dies first, get a message through. Yeah. When John died, I thought, well, maybe we'll get a message through, because I know he knew the, the deal. Yeah. Well, I haven't had a message from John. So I don't know. Now, I don't know if you can get messages back. Maybe you live, but there's no postal service. John Lennon died in December 1980. That last clip was in 1997, 17 years after Lennon was shot. Four years after that, George Harrison would die from lung cancer in December 2001. I found this exchange John and George had with Dad decades earlier about the meaning of life incredibly poignant. One of the last things I asked the Maharishi uh, was what he thought that people were on earth for. Uh, after six weeks of his teachings, what would you say? To create more happiness mm. and to fulfill all desires. Well, I believe in re reincarnation. I mean, it's just something that I feel exists, that what you sow, you reap. The ultimate thing is to 
manifest that divinity so that you can become one with the Creator. <laughs> I mean, it sounds pretty far out, you know, <laughs> for me to be talking about things like that, but that's just no, it's not what I believe. Yeah. Um, yeah, I believe the same, you see. But it's just when we're talking about meditation and that, it's, it's frightening, really, for people who haven't done it or, or are still fancy the meditation, but hear about all oh, like coming back and all that up there. So, you know, I'd sooner put it over and forget all about that. <coughs> just that, Do it you know, not to live to get into heaven by being a good boy, but just or to, to go to hell. Just to live better as, you, as you're living, you know, mm -hmm. do whatever you're doing better. Because you create all, your own. Live now, you know, not looking forward to the, the great day, or whatever it's meant to be. And there, we must leave it. John, George, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Today, Paul McCartney is 80 and Ringo Starr 82. Unfortunately, the only interview we have between Dad and Ringo was very brief in 1970, which is why you haven't heard from him much in this episode. He did make a longer appearance on Frost on Saturday in London in 1969 alongside Peter Sellers, but it was more of a comedy performance than an interview. Both McCartney and Starr have been knighted, Sir Paul in 1997 and Sir Ringo in 2018 and won more awards and accolades than we could even begin to run through. Do you think music or the world, but music or the music world would have been different if the Beatles had never existed? Yeah, in a word. Yeah, I think so. I think we were lucky to be placed at the right point in time when our generation was finding its feet. As we say, the post-war period, now suddenly all these people were 20 and looking for something exciting to do. The freedom was there. Um, the money situation wasn't bad. There were a lot of jobs and things at that point. And yeah, I think, uh, so we were lucky. We were excited. I think the chemistry of the four of us was very special. And I think in answer to your question, I think, yeah, we changed a lot. I think, I don't think we did it. I think we were spokesmen for a lot of people. But yeah, without the Beatles, it would have been a very different world, I think. Could we tempt you to play us out with a bit of music? I think so, David. Oh, thank God. Praise the Lord. <laughs> What if it rained, we didn't care She said that someday soon the sun was gonna shine And she was right, this love of mine, my valentine And I will love her for life And I will never let a day go by Without remembering the reasons why She makes me certain that I can fly And so I do Without a care I know that someday soon The sun is gonna shine And she'll be there This love of mine My valentine When Dad died in 2013, tributes poured in from all around the world, from presidents, prime ministers, and Beatles. My mum, my brothers, Miles and George, and I were utterly bowled over. We'd always known Dad was a legend, but maybe not quite how much of a legend until that point. Sir Paul McCartney had this to say about my dad. I've known David for many years. He was always a most interesting interviewer. He will be missed by many friends, and I'm proud to be able to say I was one of them. I have been so very lucky to have been Dad's son, mainly because of the love and support he gave me, but also 
to have met people like Paul McCartney. As we end this season of The Frost Tapes, it is that sentiment I am left with. It has been a privilege for me revisiting Dad's work as both his son and a journalist, and I hope you've enjoyed it too. Thanks so much for listening. The Frost Tapes is a production of Paradine Productions and Chalk and Blade. Executive producers are Wilfred Frost, George Frost, Laura Sheeter, Ruth Barnes and Nigel Sinclair. Produced by Lily Ames, Rosie Stouffer and Matt Nielsen. Written by Lucas Riley and Wilfred Frost. Sound design and mixing by Alex Portfelix and Matt Nielsen. Music composed by Pascal Wise. With special thanks to David Peck at Reeling in the Years Productions and to Whitehorse Pictures.